This is Motor Mania. Now shut up and drive. On Dubai I 103.8. I've been talking to our car experts about autonomous race cars. Um, and, uh, look, uh, without wanting to offend our next guest, um, not many people seem to be getting that excited about this. However, uh, we are there to be convinced. How do we feel about it? Is this exclusively a tech event or are we going to see it develop into something like F1 in general as we know it. Are we excited about this? Get in touch with us via text. 4001 is how you can text us. You can also reach out via the ARN Play app or call us on 04871 5500. Ayush made his thoughts known. Driverless car racing does not really appeal to me. Racing is about the drivers. It's about the teams. It's about the emotion behind the driving. You remove the human factor behind racing it becomes very technical it becomes very automated and i don't see how that's going to pick up it's great for cars uh, that are being driven commercially that are being driven uh, for personal use but when it comes to racing when it comes to a sport i think the human element is what defines the sport so i do not think i would be excited to watch autonomous racing put a driver behind the seat and that's a show Matthew agrees. I think that it's just ruining the sport and um, it's the fact that it became automated is it's just boring because you're just going to see cars going in circles. I mean, you're just going to watch a remote, like a giant remote control car race. However, Shelton disagrees. There are pros in the driverless car racing. There's no fatigue on the driver. There's no drivers included. In case of an accident, nobody gets hurt or injured as well. First driverless car race took place at CES 2022 Vegas earlier this month. It's called the Indy Autonomous Racing Challenge. Here's Paul Mitchell from the organizing team. This is hard. Multiple vehicles that are operating totally independent of one another, having to navigate and make decisions without knowing what the other vehicle is going to do. This passing competition pushes teams and their coding to the next level showcasing that the technology is ready to do real-world decision-making the way a driver would on a highway. Joining me now is someone who actually participated in the aforementioned race. Look, he's not a race car driver, but he is an award-winning robotics expert. He leads the team at the Autonomous Robotics Research Centre, the ARRC, at Abu Dhabi's Technology Innovation Institute. He was also part of the team that developed the uh, T2 Euro Racing, TII Euro racing a car that competed in las vegas he also worked on the actual production of the car he is of course danilo caporelli he joins us live on the line danilo good morning to you good morning tom thank you for having me here how was vegas Hi. it was exciting it was uh, really something uh, unprecedented the, the you know the the feeling the the results that we achieved with the cars everything was uh, uh, above the roof. It was very exciting. Yeah, I mean, the, the old saying of what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas doesn't work for, for this conversation here this morning. So uh, give us an idea about the, the atmosphere. I mean, obviously breaking new ground. Uh, was there a huge amount of excitement? Yeah, so you have to imagine that uh, it was kind of a unique event. So we had like uh, nine university teams, eight in the end, that were competing against each other. And each one of them was trying to push as much as they could uh, the cars. And in the end, uh, uh, all resulted, like this was years of work that resulted in a, 
in a fantastic show, I would say. Uh, we got very good positive uh, feedback, except <laughs> except your former guests, I would say. <laughs> but but we got very very good feedback from everyone. So we're very excited from. Uh, Talk to me about that, because obviously, you know, as you mentioned, breaking new ground, the positivity over in Vegas. But surely uh, you've, you've, you've heard those Formula One stalwarts out going, oh, this isn't racing, it'll never catch on, etc. What do you say to those, those naysayers, those detractors? I think they should come to a race and feel it, because they would, uh, they would understand that there's a lot of passion there. There is a lot of uh, human element. Actually, the fact that the car races itself, it's just, uh, I would say it's just a detail because the, the amount of human work that is behind there, the team is actually there. And uh, this is the, the kind of story that we're trying to tell because it's not just a, a boring show. Uh, first of all, it's exciting, okay? Mm. Because you, you look at this thing and you know that there is no human there. So somehow you are uh, surprised, I would say, in, in seeing what these cars can achieve. And then uh, you you always can see the team that works behind that, the, the, all of the teams, and uh, you know the the community that is uh, uh, somehow blossoming out of this uh, of this endeavor. So it's really there's a lot of human factor there. I don't think it's going to be a boring show to watch. Talk to us about the design process. How long did it take? The design process took, uh, I think, a couple of years, some give or take. Uh, so we actually. Uh, are, as teams, we are more involved in the design of the software that runs the car. Mm. So that is where each team competes against each other. The, the actual car was uh, manufactured and produced in the, in the U.S. It was designed by a team from Clemson University. It's called Deep Orange. And um, we basically, we got the car and we, uh, we put our software on that. Um, sometimes we fix uh, something that, uh, you know, in motorsport, the cars always need some, uh, let's say, some polishing. Uh, but uh, we, we mainly work on the on the software side. In terms of the design process as well, uh, from software, etc., were there certain strict regulations that you had to adhere to? Uh, yes, there are. Uh, so each competition, so far we had a couple of competitions. One was in uh, Indianapolis in October, and that was for lap time racing. And the other one was uh, in Las Vegas in January. And it was for multi-vehicle racing. So uh, you have to understand that the, the purpose of this is to advance the technology. Okay, so the regulations that the Paul Mitchell and the organizers come up with are meant to to satisfy two requirements. On one side, they want to put up a good show. On the other side, they want to make sure that all the teams can uh, actually uh, perform in a in a proficient way and uh, you know work and uh, realistically improve their their software. So every race, somehow we raise the bar and we keep raising the bar. Um, so yes, there is a there is a strict regulation that applies, and uh, and we all must follow that. So this is also important because it, it's it's not so different from what happens on real roads, right? You have some regulations, and your autonomous vehicle software must comply with these regulations, except that we go faster. In terms, in terms of that, and it does sort of broach the conversation, the wider conversation about uh, the role of autonomous vehicles on our roads. And a few, um, quick um, call out to all of our viewers and, and listeners this morning to text in about your thoughts on autonomous vehicles on the roads. I mean, does this sort of further the conversation? Is it yet more research into some of the challenges that you, your team and the world as a whole foresee when it comes to um, the wider rollout of autonomous vehicles on our roads 
Absolutely, absolutely. So you you need to understand that most of the of the car companies that are developing um, autonomous vehicle capabilities, as far as as we know, uh, they focus on more traditional urban environments. Okay, what we do instead is a bit more extreme. So we put the cars in a racing track and we have them go as fast as they can. And the nice thing is that in that scenario, you your level of risk can can be higher. Okay, because there are no humans involved on the track, and even if you crash, which which happened to us, uh, you know, in the end, it's not a big deal. I mean, of course, you you want to avoid that, but the, the message that uh, we want to get out is that it's um, it's an extreme laboratory for us. So the things that we find out and we discover on track, we hope to bring them on the roads to make the roads even safer in the future. So let's talk about the achievements uh, and what you learnt from the process. How did the car go? Um, um, what have you taken away from the experience? The car went really well. Actually, we had uh, some issues with uh, somehow with uh, with the car itself. Yeah. So um, I think in the future it will. Uh, well, we already started thinking about how to improve the you know the mechanics and the electronics of the car. So uh, I think it, it will be improved in the future. From our side, um, really satisfied with what we achieved. So we know that we are capable of racing the car at um, over 270 kilometers per hour, which is uh, something that was unprecedented on a on a road course on a, on an oval track, and um, uh, we, we're just eager to keep pushing even more. So right now, the excitement for us is really is really at uh, you know unprecedented levels because we're really confident that we can push the car. Uh, even more and we can um, so right now we we raced against uh, another car on track so the race was organized in a way that uh, you had two cars on track at each time but what we want to achieve is actually having more cars on track each one facing each other in a you know formula one like uh, race so i I think 2022 is going to be very exciting looking forward to seeing the car uh, uh, in person Uh, is it going to come to abu dhabi anytime soon or not well, let's see. Let's see. Uh, I would like to. I would like that to happen, honestly. Uh, but uh, you know, to make to make these things happen, it takes a lot of work. Yeah. So you have to understand that the uh, Las Vegas and the Indianapolis races took uh, years of work to to prepare. So right now, the team is uh, is working on uh, where the next races will be. I think they will be in the U.S. again. Uh, but uh, at some point, uh, I would like to see uh, another race, of course. Congratulations to you and all the team there, Danilo. Well done indeed for getting involved uh, and for all your achievements. Big thanks for joining us live on the line as well. Uh, Danilo Caporale there, who led the team at the Autonomous Robotics Research Centre at Abu Dhabi's Technology Innovation Institute, part of the team that developed the car. Uh, So congratulations to them. Fix it or flip it. Tell us about your car and we'll tell you how much it's worth. How does it work? Well, it's easy. We just need details about your car, your make, your model, your year, colour, mileage via the ARM Play app. I'm not going to go and do it alone. I'm now joined by another than the valuation guru, Matthew Davidson, who's the head of pricing at Algo Driven. Uh, Matthew, really appreciate your time this morning. As always, how are you? Morning, Tom. Good to see you in the driver's seat or the back seat, <laughs> as you said. I, 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 I'm quite happy being the back seat driver on this one. Uh, missing Damien this morning, but good to be here nonetheless. Uh, good to have you on board. 
uh, to bring a little sort of, uh, well, professionalism to the uh, to the race this morning. And let's talk race cars, if we can, before anything else. Autonomous race cars. Not sure this was a subject that I thought I'd be discussing of a Saturday morning. I'll be speaking to Abu Dhabi-based robotics expert Danilo Caporali, who was involved in it and competed uh, in the first driverless car race at CES 2022, Las Vegas. It took place a little earlier on this month. Um, how do we feel about it? Is this exclusively a tech event, or are we going to see it develop into something like the F1? Yeah, I mean, technology is moving at such an incredible rate in, in, in every area, and it's no surprise that it's come to motorsport. But What's interesting for me is whatever motorsport I watch, I'm a huge F1 fan, but yeah. whether I'm watching rally, whether I'm watching um, you know, short races, they all have the same ingredient for me. And that's the, the fact that humans make mistakes. And even, even the greats like Ayrton Senna, Nigel Mansell, Lewis Hamilton, what you're doing is watching somebody that's a master of their craft. But there's always that chance that they'll make that one tiny mistake that changes the dynamic of the race. And when you've got computers involved, computers, by, by logic, they don't make mistakes. They make mathematical calculations. So that element, for me, already uh, puts this to the sidelines. From, from my perspective, I, I'm sure if you look at it solely f- from technology, I'm sure it gets quite interesting. But, you know, you look at F1 so many people are involved. I mean, most people don't know, but you have two drivers in a team, of course, but you have up to 600, 800 people behind the big teams like Red Bull and Mercedes. That is just phenomenal. And, and you know, I, I just can't see how the autonomous side can compete, compete with having all of that human element involved. You make a really valid point there, Matt, and because, you know, as a keen observer of all things Formula One at the moment, uh, and, and certainly in recent seasons, one of the great successes has been this new audience that's been brought in by the Netflix, uh, Netflix series, uh, Driven to Success, Drive, uh, Drive to Success as well. Um, it, the human element of Formula One is surely part and parcel of what sells Formula One, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I've watched, I'm going to sound so old now, I've watched Formula One since 78. Um, and, you know, I've grown up watching all the changes uh, through the sport. Um, but one thing that's never changed is my excitement to watch when a car comes in uh, to the pit crew. And, you know, they've got milliseconds to make the right or wrong decisions. Yeah. You know, I've I've watched incidents happen on the track and you've got race directors again have to make split second decisions. Look at the final race um, of the season where the race director had to make that decision of bringing the safety car in, which changed the dynamic of the whole race. I mean, you know, I just don't see this happening. Uh, and that's why F1 has grown, because Netflix just put a huge spotlight on the sport and people realized how exciting it is and how much of a dynamic sport it is. It is interesting, though, isn't it? Because obviously the very fact that you and I are discussing this and the very fact that um, it has garnered such international interest, it it, it points to the role of technology in our lives at the moment. Uh, We've seen the success of Formula E in recent years. We've seen uh, the move away to to, to more neutral fuels, to more uh, less of a carbon footprint, etc. There is demand for this, but I suppose it's the balance. Where do you find that balance, Matt? Yeah, I mean, look, Formula E is a progression. I mean, I've, you know, I've talked on this show, you know, I, I'm one of the people that have ordered an electric car still waiting for it, but <laughs> I've ordered one and I, and I believe that 
you know, we will in time completely make a transition across to it. And, and you know, ice cars will be effectively plastic things that we enjoy on our weekends at best. But, you know, when you look at Formula E, it's still humans behind the wheel and they can still yeah. make mistakes. And the cars are a lot more balanced in Formula E, but that puts more emphasis on the driver. Uh, and I think, you know, if you look at the the uh, the autonomous racing, I mean, that by nature suggests that, you know, you, you know it's going to be completely boring. But if you've got guys contri- controlling the cars with, you know, controllers, then maybe that they can become the stars. I- I'm not sure. I mean, I- I'm, I'm very open to change. I've always been open to change in the automotive world. But at the moment, I, I-, I don't see this being a huge thing. Maybe I'm wrong. Right. Uh, people are getting in touch. So let's uh, go to the lines now. We've got Matthew with us uh, this morning throughout course all the way through to high noon today. So uh, let's go to those lines. In fact, we've got Tanya joining us first and foremost. Uh, good morning to you, Tanya. Good morning. How are you? Very well, indeed. How are you, Tanya? Good, thank you. Getting used to the new weekend? Yes. <laughs> we're all sorted now. A couple of weekends in, we're all sorted. Listen, we've got Matt on the line. So what's your question for Matthew? I just wanted to see what's the price of my Audi A6 2014 uh, model. I'm looking to upgrade to a four-wheel drive because the family is expanding. So I just want to know what would be the price if I wanted to sell it. Matthew, over to you. Morning, Tanya. What year is the car, the Audi A6? 2014. Okay. You're, you're looking um, uh, a lot of factors. You've got to factor in things like trim and kilometers. What is the kilometers at the moment? 181,000. Yeah, I mean, for a a European German car, that's getting up there and that car is going to start to become expensive now. In the market right now, that car's probably worth 40 to 42,000, but you're making the right decision to move away from it. Eight years old now, kilometers, you don't want those kilometers to pass 200 because that will make it a difficult sell. But I think you should look definitely at moving the car on and of course, Price-wise, you're looking around forty, forty-two thousand. Okay, that's great. Okay, thank you, Tanya. Appreciate it. Thanks so much indeed for your call. Tanya's giving us a call uh, on the hotline this morning: zero four eight seven one five five zero zero. I say hotline because they are hot at the moment. They are lighting up as we speak. In fact, we can go over to line number one now and say good morning to Sushil. Morning, Sushil. Morning, Tom. Good to have you uh, on board. Good to hear you. Good to hear you on a Saturday morning. Well, nice to be here on a Saturday morning. Saturday, Sunday, they're all merging into one at the moment. So, Sashir, what's your yeah. question for Matthew? Uh, hi, Matthew. Uh, so, I was looking for a car uh, for my employee. I'm looking for a fuel-efficient sedan. Uh, my mind is on the Honda City. Could you please uh, let me know if there are any other options that I should consider? Yeah, morning. Uh, that's a great question. I mean, especially around the city and you're looking at um you know efficiency not just for fuel but of course of maintenance as well i mean um you've got a a lot of choices out there i mean i would definitely say whatever you do look at sticking to to japanese predominantly honda uh toyota uh nissan of course um but you know you can look at things like the the rush and the toyota rush as well is is a good option um, you've also got the Nissan Kicks. You probably see a lot of Nissan Kicks going around. 1.6 four-cylinder engine, um, great resale value as well. 
Uh, and, and if you did want to sway away from Japanese, you can just look at some of the entry-level Ford stuff as well, like, like the Ford Focus. Um, again, that will be a 1.5 four-cylinder engine uh, and will give you a, a lot of bang for your buck. But my, my tip is, is definitely stick um, with the Japanese Honda, Toyota, Nissan. And I think, you know, if you, do, if you do go for the Honda City, it's not a bad choice at all. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I'll stick to the Japanese then. Thanks. Yeah, 100%. Thank you so much. Good on you, Sushil. Really appreciate your call this morning. Thank you to Sushil for getting in touch with us. In fact, you can get in touch with us at any point throughout the show. You can either text us on 4001. You can get in touch via the ARM Play app. Or why not give Arnie Zena and the rest of the team a call on 04871 Lines are live at the moment. We're going to go back to those lines shortly. Matthew's with us. Uh, this morning. Let's go to Liam now, who's got in touch with the show this morning. This is Liam's question. Uh, morning, guys. Great show. Um, I've got a 2017 Ford Focus, which is about 125,000 kilometers on. I use it to do the daily Abu Dhabi run where I work. Started having problems in the last six months. Started with the brake discs. Now um, I need a new set of uh, front bearings and um, shock absorbers. So I'm thinking the costs are just not worth it. Do you think I should keep fixing it or should I flip it? And if so, how much is it worth? Uh, and the second question, if I do flip it, I'm thinking of changing for a 4x4. Can you recommend a 4x4 that would be decent off-road, but also not too horrifically uneconomical for doing the daily drive to Abu Dhabi? Thanks, guys. Ford, Focus, fix or flip, Matt? Oh, that's a lot to unpack there, but we'll start with the Focus. I mean, it's the kilometres that are really hurting him there. I mean, it's, it's only a... F- what four nearly five year old car now um value wise it's probably 25 to twenty seven thousand. but i wouldn't i wouldn't fix it i'd move that car on because you know the cost of fixing it up is going to um run into the thousands and then you're not going to really get that back on the resale value so i would move the focus on great question regarding what is good for the desert, but also economical. Well, they're they're really against each other. I mean, a car that's good in the desert needs to be quite powerful and needs to be robust and heavy. And that obviously is going to affect the fuel economy. So, you know, you're looking um, at a difficult answer, but I have the answer. And I would say go for the RAV4, the Toyota RAV4. It's a 2.54 cylinder engine, still 200 brake horsepower four-wheel drive capable in the desert and it's got a rear locking differential as well which is important for for desert driving but when you're out on the highway with that car you're going to get the fuel economy so yeah i would um sell the focus and buy a toyota rav4 uh, lots more questions coming through liam appreciate that one that one was sent through this morning by liam you can text us on 4001 here's one from one of our listeners no name with this one but appreciate the uh, question nonetheless uh, nice uh, simple and to the point audi q7 matthew 2016 gold a hundred and ten thousand kilometers uh, gold in the in the city of gold. <laughs> what what is the uh, the year again, Tom? Uh, this is a 2016. Yeah, so look, these cars are always in demand. Seven seat car kilometers aren't too bad, actually. It's about where it should be. Um, if it's the the 45 TFSI, it will be around 125, 130k. Um, you know, the colors are a bit out there. I, I like. <laughs> For resale, black, silvers, whites, of course, but um, somebody will like that color, and I think you'll you'll get around 125k.
All that glitters is gold, as you say. Uh, let's turn our attention to Alan, who's got in touch with us this morning. Alan, send a text message uh, through to 4001. You can do exactly that as well. Alan's got a 2018 uh, Merc. It's a Mercedes-Benz GLC 63 AMG. Uh, it is white. We like that. It's got 66,000 on the clock. These are nice cars. Um, perfect for the city. I would say with those kilometers, this car's around 270, 280,000, but it will move quite quickly. There's a lot of people chasing the GLCs. They're, they're good looking cars. Another question that's come through, or rather a statement. This one's from uh, G. Mears, who's been in touch. Morning, all. Uh, Matt, I've got a Pajero. It's maroon. It's 2017. It's got 565,000. Sorry, it's got 56,500 on the clock at the moment. I'd like to sell it. How much do you recommend, please? That's from G. Well, you give me a heart attack then. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I got, I got, my, I got my zeros wrong on that one. <laughs> although, although that wouldn't be absolutely out there for a Pajero. I have, I have seen them with, with four or 500,000 really? before. Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, they do go that far, Star Trek kilometers, um, but that's much better, fifty-six thousand. And this, this—I don't know if you know Tom, but they've stopped making the Pajero now. Yeah. They've announced they've stopped making them. So actually, um, these ones that are kind of 2017 up until now, 2022. In a few years' time, they're going to hold their value really well. But this car will sell right now for 70k, 70,000 dirhams, and and you'll sell it pretty quick. Just on, on that, just to sort of uh, continue that conversation about um, kilometres on the clock, is there, a sort of, is, is there a red flag number or is it very dependent on model and year? Well, so the, the psychology in, in, in everything, and I mean, the, the first one is always 100k when a car crosses 100,000 kilometres and you have to measure it against the age of the car. A 2014 with 100,000 wouldn't raise an eyebrow. A 2019 with 100,000 would. Mm. So you have to factor that in as well. But obviously the 100,000, 200,000, if they're German, European cars and they pass 200,000 in general, that starts to worry people because of the cost of maintenance. If they're Japanese, like we talked earlier, like the the Hondas, the Toyotas, um, the, the Nissans, they above 300k, like a Land Cruiser, Toyota Land Cruiser above 300,000 isn't an issue. Those would probably raise eyebrows when they get over 400 towards 500 um, because they're just so reliable and they just retain their value. But I think the marker is measuring the age versus a kilometer and what type of car is it, European or Japanese? Uh, we've got another one coming through. This is a 2015. It's from Tahir. Uh, Tahir's been in touch saying, hey, Matt, I've got a 2015 Ford Explorer XLT. It's white, 130K on the clock. Yeah, one of the cars that's within our family. Um, I have a 2013 Explorer XLT, uh, which is going soon and being replaced by an electric car. Um, but that that they they sell so well again seven seats uh, staple car for the UAE that car in the market right now is early 60s 61 62 um, but it will again will sell pretty quick one more before we take a short break and catch a breath uh, this is from Kerry who's been in touch uh, morning Matt looking to sell my black Pontiac uh, Solstice 2008 130k on the clock convertible that's from Kerry. Yeah, I mean that that car's going to unfortunately not get too much cash. I mean it's uh 
now what a 14 year old car mm. and those convertibles start to um the the mechanisms start to fail on them it's probably in the late teens 18 19k but um you know i would spread that car around a, a bit get it out on social media as well as the popular platforms like car switch doobie cars um divisal etc because you need you, you need to get some um uh, decent bandwidth to move that car because it's not very popular. Fix it or flip it. Uh, we are telling you how much a car is worth if you sell it now. Uh, here's how it works. Fairly straightforward. Uh, we need your details about your car. Make your model, the year, the colour, the mileage, uh, whether you've got fluffy dice uh, hanging off the rear view mirror, whatever it might be, we want to hear about it. We're going to go straight uh, to those messages, to the lines in just a few moments' time. Just had Kerry talking to us there, Matt, about convertibles as well. Obviously, we know that weather conditions here uh, can be fairly abrasive at the best of times as well. I mean, do convertibles work in this environment? Well, you know, you look at the UAE and you look at how many days of sunshine we get and you immediately think, oh, convertibles make sense here. But, you know, we've both, me and you, have lived in the region a long time. Mm. And one thing that I understand about it here is the summer is just, you know, far too hot for a convertible. But even during the daytime in the winter, I mean, that sun's still really powerful. I mean, the times I've driven convertibles and enjoyed it has been in the winter during the evening and on the fringe months, kind of um, October, November, April, May, where it's not quite too hot yet in the evening. That's when that's when I think convertibles work here. But actually, during the day with the sun beating down, I, I don't see the appeal personally. <laughs> Lots of questions coming in uh, here. Let's go to them. So Jamie's been in touch. Jamie wants to know from you, uh, Matthew, would uh, he'd like to buy a Ford EcoSport. There are, however, concerns about the EcoSport, especially once it's crossed that uh, 100,000 kilometre uh, limit that we mentioned a little earlier on. Do you agree with this? He's looking at the 2015 model. Uh, I know the EcoSport very well, and it is, it's, it's a you know, small, small little SUV um, and it's a great entry-level car with, with a small uh, 1.5 four-cylinder engine. The issues they have are gearbox-related, um, and that's across m- most of the smaller Fords of that age, and, and they, do, they do suffer from gearbox issues. So if you're looking to buy that car, the one thing that I would definitely advise doing is making sure the gearbox is sound before you move forward. Apart from that, they're, they're pretty stable. I mean, the engines are good, not many electrical problems, suspension, everything is fine. It's just uh, the transmission, the gearbox is what suffers on that car. Um, we have got Ishmael joining us live on the line this morning. Ishmael, good morning to you. A very good morning. How are you? Very well. I understand you've got a Nissan, is that right? That's right. I got a Nissan Pathfinder 2009 Black LE in a good condition, 230,000 kilometers, so just want to know how much I will get. 230 or 213? 230, 230. 230. Matt, over to you. Yeah. Yeah, a car that can get away with having those kilometers, the Pathfinder. I mean, there's a new model of the Pathfinder out now, but the old one is still pretty sought after. Um, that V6 engine, if it's the V6, is, is again, super capable. Um, with those kilometers in that age, I would say you're looking at, possibly 19 to 20,000. Um, as I say, it will move pretty quick because they're quite desirable. But um, I, I would put it on as a whisker under 20,000, like 19,500. And I'm sure you'll get quite a lot of interest.
Ismail, hope that helps. That's great. That's great, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good on you. Uh, bless you. Thank you very much indeed to Ishmael for getting in touch with us. You can do exactly the same. Thomas has done that. Uh, he's got a Merc. It's a 2018 model, Matt. It's a GI43 Mercedes 2018. Uh, 35,000 kilometres on the clock. What can you help him with? Uh, 35,000 is good. Um, you know, when you see these lower kilometres, it, it isn't such um, a mystery because we had you know, 2020 and 2021, where mm. a lot of people have cut down their, their driving, you know, because of the, the pandemic. So, you know, you can pick up these cars with the lower um, kilometers. I, I would say if it's the 500 trim and um, with those sort of kilometers, he's going to get pretty decent money, probably 175, 180. Um, but that'll be snapped up because, you know, the, the kilometers are fantastic for essentially nearly a four-year-old car. Where do you stand, Matt, on this whole argument of, of buying European or going further afield? I mean, there is a school of thought out there that a lot of the European models, albeit very desirable and great automotive engineering, just don't fit with this region as well because of the service costs on them and because of the lifetime, etc. Is there is there an argument to be had there? Yeah, well, you look back in, in Europe itself, um, it's the complete flip isn't it i mean you know if you take the uk for example the japanese models don't even come anywhere near um the european models but the reason it it works so well here is is history you know for many decades now the japanese manufacturers have really focused on this region and built cars to withstand this region and because of that the network that supports all of that is grown to be quite large, you know, the service centers and everything. And then, you know, economics, unit economics coming to play and it, and it makes it more affordable to service them and run them. When you've got a car that works so well in this region, then it starts to become a no-brainer. The German cars, the European cars, and some of the American cars, you know, let's take a, a Land Rover, which is very popular here. Um, I'd own one all day in warranty and, and Altaya will extend the warranty up to seven years now. But outside of that, I wouldn't. Um, and I think that's another consideration as well. I think these cars are great to own when you've got that protection of a warranty. And some of them also have quite nice service contracts. But outside of that, again, it's Japanese all the way here. Um, funny to say that we've got Sanjeev on the line now. Uh, Sanjeev, good morning to you. Good morning. I understand you've got a Land Rover. Absolutely. Love the car. Tell me more about it. Well, we've had it since 2009. Uh, It's been the family car since then, and we've driven it as much as we could. It has obviously had a little bit of Land Rover problems, (laughs) rear differential kind of challenges, but uh, and a bit of, you know, once once in a while, take through the workshop, workshop thing. The only thing is that I really want to keep it for as long as I can, um, probably up to about half a million kilometers at least. But I'm thinking that the maintenance costs uh, from the OEM manufacturers or the OEM parts as well as from uh, the, the Altaya here could be pretty expensive. So is there, any, is there anything else that I could do? Because I do see some pretty uh, – I see older Land Rovers on the road, and they seem to be in good tick. So I'm trying to figure out how the others manage it. Dr. Matthew, over to you. Your patient? Yeah, um which uh, Land Rover is it, first of all? Is it the Range Rover, LR4? What have you got? It's the LR2 3.2 liter. Okay, and you say it's a 2009? It's a 2009, yep. 
Yeah, the, the 3.2 V6. I mean, the LR2 now, um, it, you know, it's going to keep costing you money. But if you want to keep this car, um, when you, you look right. at the, the values of it now, you, I, if you've owned this car since new, nobody else has touched this car. You know it. You seem to have maintained it um, perfectly uh, and at the agency. Value-wise, that car, I'm sorry to say, wouldn't fetch much more than 20000 um in the market. So keeping it isn't a bad option. In, in terms of maintenance, there is a lot of options outside of um, Land Rover Altea. Um, I don't like to recommend specific garages because I remain neutral. Of course, that's what we want. Um, but, you know, a quick search online will, will, will show you that there's some great garages out there, um, particularly in the Alcuz area as well, that, that um, specifically look after Land Rover and do a great job and, and can use, um, uh, you know, OEM parts, but with reduced labor, which makes it, you know, economically sound. Um, you know, look, when you're looking at a garage, look at their recent reviews um, and, and make an informed decision. But if you're going to keep this car, it's, it's not a bad option because the residual value is not good anymore. Um, and I definitely would look at servicing outside of the agency. Does that help, Sanjeev? It does too, certainly. Good on you. Uh, well, have you made a decision on the back of that one, or are you still uh, coming up with that decision? No, no, no. I made a decision straight away. In fact, it just endorsed the decision. I wanted <laughs> to keep the car anyway because I love it. So, yeah. And I'm not going to get anything by selling it, so I might as well keep it. Keep hold of it. Uh, it is a family heirloom. Good on you, Sanjeev. Thank you very much indeed for that one. Uh, we've had Sanjeev join us. We're now going to be joined uh, by uh, Jonah joins us live on the line. Morning, Joan. Good morning, Tom. Great to have you with us. What's your question for Matt? Uh, I have um, a Mazda MX-5. It's red, 2014. It's got 110,000 kilometres, and it's a convertible. I'm in two minds. I'm thinking about selling it. Would it be worth selling it? And if so, how much would it be worth? Over to you, Matt. Yeah, I mean, the, the MX-5, also known as the Miata, depending on which region you are in the world, uh, is, it's been around for, for what seems like forever, and it's, it's such a desirable car. Um, super reliable, two-liter four-cylinder. Um, value-wise, probably early 40s. Um, I don't ever see many on the market. I think if you put it out there, it would sell relatively quickly as well. So um, if you are looking at selling it, put it out maybe around forty-one, forty-two thousand, but ex- expect it to move quite quickly. Does that oh, help, wow. Joan? Uh, yes, absolutely. Thank you very much indeed, Matt. Not Thank at all. You. Really appreciate very your call advice. as well. Give us a call. For, uh, you can uh, get in touch with the show at any point. Loads of text messages coming through. Barry's been in touch. Uh, Matthew, he asks, 2016 Blue Land Cruiser, 5.7 litre GXR, 66,000 on the clock. Looking to sell. Interested in giving us a ballpark price, if that's right? Yeah, the, the Land Cruiser... Um the V8 is obviously the more desirable one. Trim-wise, trim, trim wise, you've got the GXR, and then the top is the VXR, so you're only just down from the top. What was the year, Tom? Uh, the year is the 2016. Yeah, so bang on the right time to start moving on. They have a five-year warranty, so you're just creeping out the five-year warranty. That, that car's going to sell for about 170, 170,000 dirhams. Um, again, uh, being the V8 and a GXR, it will move relatively quickly, but I would say put it out there around 
late 160s, 169, something like that. It's all about the value at the moment. Loads coming through. Uh, here we are, another one. No name. Do put your name with it because uh, it's lovely to give you a shout out on the radio of a Saturday morning. Uh, we got one here from one of our listeners out there saying, Hi, hey, Matt, I've got a Jeep Compass. It's a 2018 model. I've got 61,000 on the clock. Can you give me a price? 2018 Compass. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't hear much about this car, mm. but they're out there, and, and I actually really like them. I mean, they're kind of, for me, they're, they're the, uh, the step down from the Grand Cherokee. If you can picture what a Grand Cher- Cher- Cherokee looks like, yeah. and then just shrink it by about 20%, that's what a Compass looks like. Um, you're looking value-wise around 77,000, 78,000 dirhams. Um, but I, I like these, and I think they're an underrated car. If you want something just slightly smaller than, than the Jeep Grand Cherokee, then look at the Compass for sure. Quick question from me, um, and it's a question that goes back, hearts back to the conversation we were having with Sanjeev and others about when car is out of warranty. Um, is that the time to go looking for a friendly uh, or to, uh, uh, garage, a friendly garage owner that's going to keep your car uh, serviced? Or, I mean, would you ever suggest trying to find somebody during the warranty period or not and and how do you find these people is it just complete word of mouth well the the best time and this is this is 31 years of of, of knowledge (laughs) and data i mean the the best time to buy a car is 18 months old and the the best time to sell it is, is between four and four and a half years why because it's depreciated enough enough from the new car price for you to get value out of it. And the, the gap of depreciation between 18 months and four, four and a half years is, is the little it's going to be, um, the smallest it's going to, going to be. So um, in terms of should you sell it, always, yeah, around four, four and a half years, because then you sell it with peace of mind mm. to a buyer. And after that period, that's when the value goes uh, down quite a bit. Uh, you kind of have these step downs in value. Um, if you are keeping the car, just look at how long you're keeping it. So if the warranty runs out five years and you think I'm going to keep it for another year, definitely, definitely maintain it at the agency, at the dealer, because you're going to have that complete set of stamps in the book um, and complete dealer history. It's not worth going outside the agency for one year. But if you think I'm going to keep it for another three or four years, yes, uh, you will save your money by going outside of the agency. And again, like I said earlier in the show, you need to do some due diligence have a look at some options out there for, for people that maintain that particular brand, but look at their reviews and particularly their most recent reviews and don't just jump in at it. But, um, and, and last thing, of course, if you know anybody else with a similar car, ask them, are they maintaining it at a garage and, and how are they? Um, but yeah, if you follow those rules uh, mm. from start to finish, you'll, you'll, be, uh, you'll be in the motoring world and you'll be very savvy. Fix it or flip it. Fix it or flip it, Matt. Here comes a couple more of those questions. And a huge thanks to all of our listeners uh, this morning, yet again proving that Motormania is one of the most popular shows on Dubai I-103.8. We are being uh, inundated with messages, phone calls, uh, social media and more. Uh, Let's go to the lines. Ahmed joins us. Good morning to you, Ahmed. Good morning. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Matthew. I understand you've got Um, a Mercedes. Yeah, I had a Merc uh, 2007 silver. I uh, bought it from the uh, Mercedes garage, and it's 290,000 on it. Well maintained uh, all through uh, in the um, uh, dealer. Uh, and I'm just wondering, uh, I mean, it's just driving very well. Just wondering, uh, does it really worth keep uh, 
fixing a few things comes now and then or flip it. So that is the question, and I hand it over to Matthew. So, Laura, when you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? Yeah, good morning. Um, what is the, the model that you have? Uh, E350. Uh, it's the, the high end, so it has some, a lot of extras um, uh, on it. But, um, yeah, so it's uh, E350. Is it Japanese import or GCC car? It's a GCC from the from the Mercedes dealer here in Dubai. That that's great because um, a lot of the uh, the older ones now are Japanese imports and they won't retain their value as much as the GCC. I mean, if it's not causing you too much problems, um, you can definitely consider keeping it. I mean, value wise, you're not going to get much more than twenty five, twenty seven thousand for that car. Um, it's probably more valuable to you because it still looks a great car and it's still a slice of luxury um, and you're not going to get any other car for that value. But I would say monitor it. If, if it looks like you, you're going to have um, any bill above seven, 8,000 dirhams, then you need to be careful um, because then you're starting to really eat into to the economics of keep, keeping it. But if it's running quite well, yeah, for now I'd keep it. It's a nice car. So, okay. And it can go 400,000, 300,000, uh, I mean, 400,000 people, right, these cars. Yeah, I mean, en- engine-wise maintained, it, it should do 350, 400. I mean, if you convert that back the other way to mileage, you know, 250,000 miles, which is what these cars will do in Europe. So, yeah, you should be fine. Is that all right, Ahmed? Thank you very much. Not Thank at you. all. Good on you. Enjoy your Saturday. Enjoy your drive as well. Line number one, we've got Charlie, who's got his alpha. Morning, Charlie. Good morning to you all. How are you all keeping? Very well, indeed. Tell me more about your uh, Alfa Romeo. Yeah, it's a 2019 model white with uh, tan leather interior, sport tan leather. And uh, the big thing is it's 9,200 kilometers on it. So, Matt, um, your thoughts on this one? What is, what is it? Um, uh, Julia? Julieta? Julia Veloz, yeah. Oh, okay. Veloz is, is nice, yeah. Look, I mean, you'd only move that car on at this early stage in its life if you, um, if you weren't happy with it. If it's the yeah. Q4, I mean, I, performance-wise, I really love this car, the Q4 Veloz. Um, yeah, it'll it still be, of course, un- under warranty. I mean, value-wise, you're looking around 155. Um, it, it may it may do a little bit more, but my gut feeling 155 sell for 150. Wow. Um, there's not going to be a lot on the market, I imagine, probably less than half a dozen for sale right <laughs> yeah. now. Um, but yeah, unless you've got no, a specific reason for for selling it, I would keep it and at least get the benefit of another year, 18 months out of that um, warranty and everything that you've got with the car. But uh, yeah, beautiful car, by the way. Absolutely, really uh, beautiful. Don't get rid of it, Charlie. Okay, well, so we'll we'll uh, we'll, give, we'll send it over to you tomorrow. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Good on you, Charlie. Hope that helped one. All right, take care. Good on you. Uh, thanks to Charlie for getting in touch with us. Don't see many Alfa Romeos on the road out here, Matt. Well, Jeremy Clarkson once said, you, you, you know, you'll, you'll hate it, but you've always got to own at least one Alfa in your life. <laughs> I think it was him that, that said it. No, they're, they're here. Um, 
Uh, now, now you've said that, Tom. I bet you drive out <laughs> over the next couple of days, and all you see is alphas. Um, <laughs> we'll but get... yeah, I mean, the, the, the older ones have definitely got that stigma of of uh, lack of reliability and, and expensive to run. But yeah, some of the new ones they're kicking out aren't too bad at all. Right, time now for one of our most popular segments on the show. It is time for speed quote. I know, Matt, you thought you got away with this. No, Damien Reed in the hot seat, but uh, uh, no, there is no get. Getting away with it. It is time to uh, test uh, the speed and the knowledge of Mr. Matthew Davidson. It's when we do a quickfire round of car valuations to test Matt. Basically, he's got a minute. He's got 60 seconds. I understand the, the record currently stands at eight cars to date. Uh, so let's see if you can break that record uh, early on in 2022 whilst Demo is away. So, Matt, you ready? Yeah, born ready, Tom. Born ready. Time starts now. And the first one is a Honda Accord. 2012, red, 240k on the clock. Oh, that will do late teens, 18, 19,000. Ford Fiesta, black, 2012, 190k. Or even less, about 12, 13,000 dirhams. Jeep Cherokee Laredo, silver, 2010, 240k. That would still do early 30s, 32, 33. Uh, next up, we've got a Honda Civic White 2014, 160,000 kilometres. Sells still so well, um, 28, 29k. Uh, 2019, Toyota Yaris White 12,000. 2019, uh, that'll be uh, 24, 25k. Black 2016, Audi S6, 120,720 kilometres. Or you're looking at uh, early 100s, 105, 110. Volvo V40 T5, 190k, 2014. Uh, Not much money. They're going to sell for late teens, early 20s, 20k. I'll give you that one. Uh, You started, and so therefore you have finished. However, you haven't made your record. The record still remains at eight, but that was a very worthy seven. So congratulations for that one. Well done to you, Matt. Uh, uh, Seven was the score to beat as we continue uh, with, of course, the speed quote throughout the rest of the year. Welcome back to Motor Mania for you live here on Dubai I 103.8. I just want to say a big thanks to... Uh, Matthew for being with us uh, on the first hour of the show Uh, Matthew Davidson setting the new mark uh, at uh, 7 for 2022, still not uh, up with the uh, 8 that he's had in the past but a big thanks to Matt for joining us uh, live on the line, if you want to get in touch with Matt uh, all over social media uh, he's the head of pricing at Algo Driven, so a big thank you to Matthew uh, for joining us in the first hour of the show as he does each and every week right here on Motor Mania. It's the second hour now of Motor Mania. It's the only interactive car show on UAE Radio. We give you motoring advice. We talk about what's happening in the car world. And we'll let you have a voice on road safety issues. My name's Tom Urquhart. I'm in the hot seat in the driver's seat. Don't put me in the driver's seat. I'm I'm one of those um, backseat drivers myself. Drive Miss Daisy, me. Uh, Keep you company until Damien Reed returns to put his his, 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 uh, pedal to the metal, if you like, uh, and gets a world. He's currently having a well-deserved break over in Australia. So what have we got coming up for you in the next 60 minutes or so? Uh, You've heard of driving. Driverless vehicles. What about a driverless race? The first ever autonomous uh, car race took place uh, this month in Las Vegas, and one of the contenders uh, was developed in Abu Dhabi. 
I'll be speaking to the man who made that happen, robotics expert Danino Caporali. And are you thinking of getting yourself an electric car that isn't a Tesla? Kevin Shaloub, founder and CEO of EV Labs, has a couple of recommendations for you in this hour. But first, uh, let's find out what's happening in the motoring world with uh, not one, but two motoring journalists joining us live on the line and live via Microsoft Teams. It's great to have him to Shan Giado and Noel Ebden join us live this morning. Uh, Empty and Noel, thank you so much indeed for being with us. No problem. Great to be here. Uh, thank you yeah. so much indeed to have, uh, nice to have you here uh, on a Saturday morning back in the hot seat as well, talking all things automotive. And before anything else, let's get your thoughts on this autonomous race car subject that is doing the rounds. Uh, Danny uh, Caporelli will be uh, joining us a little later on, very much involved in it. Uh, Competing in the first driverless car race at CES 2022 in Las Vegas earlier on this month. Uh, Noel, first and foremost to you, are we excited about driverless car races? Uh, no, to be <laughs> frank. Um, but that said... Um, if we think about it, a lot of the races that you watch, you actually don't necessarily watch them live. So you could argue that actually a lot of races, you're not if you unless you're watching it physically live, then it whether there's someone in the car or not to a lot of people would be, you know, by the by. To me personally, if you're following uh, an actual sort of person or a personality, a Lewis Hamilton or a Max Verstappen or whoever you're, you're a fan of, I think that's what adds the flavour to motor racing. Um, for me, having very vague, uh, very briefly raced cars, it's um, you know I want to see people in cars and sat behind the uh, the wheel. But uh, um, I'm sure the younger generation might disagree. So um, let let's see. I mean, uh, yeah, I, whenever I say no, I'm always um, I'm always seem seem to be wrong on these things. So uh, let's let's see. M Tushan, um, is this is this a sports event? Is this an F1 event? Is this an automotive event? Or is this just tech? I think it's a little bit of both. I think definitely there's a high tech element to it as well. I think sporting unavoidably involves teams, involves nationalities, involves drama, involves personalities. So I agree with Noel to some extent. However, I think when you're talking about tech, there is a engineering excitement to it as well. And I've actually attended autonomous driving race of sorts right here in Dubai, but not quite the way you think. There's a little shop on Sheikh Zayed Road which has these little mini four-wheel drives. So they have a little track set up. It runs across the entire shop. It's massive when you see it. And you have a whole bunch of people that have little slot cars that run the races. Now, obviously, there's nobody driving these cars. So it's all about setting these cars up and letting them run the track as fast as they can in a certain time and so on. So that basically is autonomous driving. And you know what? It's quite exciting to watch because each person is their own individual team. How they set up makes the difference as the cars start off the same. So when it comes to autonomous racing, it comes down to how each team can set up and differentiate their cars. So that's what it's going to be. That's what the excitement is going to be. It won't be for everyone, I think. Right, fellas. Um, that's one of the big talkers. Obviously, we'll be talking to Danilo a little later on in the show about that one. But let's talk about you two, because it's been a while. Good time for a catch up. Noel, uh, you've had a well-earned uh, holiday at the end of last year. Um, but before that, you teased us before you went away about the historic Grand Prix. Tell us more about how the event was. Uh, yeah, actually, I was ple- very, very pleasantly surprised. Um, the um, uh, we've tried to, things like this have been tried to be done before, and 
uh, haven't necessarily worked. Um, some have, some haven't. Um, this was actually a phenomenal event. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was there for two days. They had uh, uh, old F1 cars, which is what everybody wants to see, especially with the sort of quieter uh, F1 cars, the modern F1 cars. They had Group C uh, sports cars there as well. Um, got to see James Heskis' uh, F1 car, which um, actually I think won the whole event, actually, if I remember rightly. Um, there was a really stunning uh, Renault there as well, uh, which sounded absolutely epic. Uh, and it was packed all day. Um, and I think the best news of the whole thing was that the organisers have committed to uh, running it again next year. Within two days of the event finishing, they announced that it will run again next year, which is uh, they've obviously got a a long-term plan to make this work um, and they want people to turn up a little bit like the Goodwood Festival in the UK. They want people to dress up and uh, uh, wear sort of period clothing and stuff like that, which would be, you know, if more people did that, would be absolutely brilliant. But it was very well attended as well. Um, it just, uh, as I say, I think it will just be something that will grow over time. But uh, uh, anyone who missed that, any, any petrol head who missed that really did miss out. That was absolutely brilliant event. Quick, quick pick up on that one because the little phrase you mentioned there, um, the Renault sounded epic. It's part and parcel <laughs> of any get together for, as you said, petrol heads, for anyone that loves their cars, etc. Look, we all live here in the UAE. We know that everyone's tweaking their cars left, right, and centre to get as much sand as they can uh, on their cars as well. Is that one of the big challenges for car makers at the moment, Noel, moving forward into the into the EV era? Yes, absolutely. Um, the all driving and especially motorsport is actually based around all of the senses. It's not just based around vision and sound is a massive part of it. And uh, I actually think Formula E has done quite a good job because the cars have actually don't sound when it first came out i thought it was going to be watching a silent f1 race but actually there is quite a bit of sound they've actually i think they've engineered sound back into the cars but um, yes it is definitely part of it and if you speak to sort of diehard f1 fans they will rue the day that they made f1 cars quieter a couple of seasons ago because you can go to an f1 race now and not actually wear earplugs whereas when i used to attend f1 i mean if you literally come away with your ears ringing and damage it you've probably damaged your hearing for the next couple of years but uh, uh, or you'd wear you know head you know headphones or plugs um, so yeah it's definitely part of it um how they get over that with uh, evs i mean evs need to make a noise anyway mm. like road evs because it would otherwise be quite easy to get run over by one we're stepping out in front of it it's uh, that's been a um an eu um worry for mm. quite a while but i think that's pretty much solved now because they do actually make a fairly loud sound actually but um uh, certainly not 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 along the lines of an f1 car but um but yeah so it, it's definitely part of it 100 im tashan best sounding car you've ever driven Oh, that's very, very easy. I was very fortunate enough to drive a 1967 Mustang GT500 replica. It's actually pretty much a perfect replica of the one from Gone in 60 Seconds. It was 750 horsepower. It sounded like God waking up. It was brilliant. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> Listen, we're in the early stages of 2022, Imtisham. What have you been driving this year? Uh, what have I been driving this year? So, 
It's a bit of a slow start to the year. Everybody's still getting their car schedules together. The first car I've driven off the bat is the new Nissan Xterra. I was quite excited to drive this because I quite loved the old car. It was a well-priced sort of off-roader for people who can't really afford a patrol. New one, um, they've downsized the engine quite a bit to two and a bit liters. It's lost a lot of punch, but it's got a lot of tech in it. Apple CarPlay, all of the rest. It's super well equipped with everything, you know, blind spot monitors, all the cameras in the world. It isn't very exciting to drive, unfortunately, because it's kind of based on a Navarra pickup. So it is a little bit more basic than I was expecting. It's pretty tough. It's pretty strong. It just won't light anybody's synapses on fire. But the pricing is good. It's pretty spacious. And being a Nissan, it's going to be extremely reliable. So I think it's going to do really well. As a matter of fact, if you look out the window, you'll probably see five passing by. So I think they've got that car exactly where it needed to be. Uh, in terms of other new cars, we've got the new Nexus NX coming out. I haven't driven that yet, but it will be launching this Thursday. It's at CityWalk. People are pop down and see it. The Lexus NX is basically a Lexus version of the Toyota RAV4 with a lot more tech thrown at it and a lot more luxurious interior. Expect a turbocharged engine, which is new for the segment. I think we'll have something a bit more powerful. But I think Toyota might not even launch that and go straight to hybrid. I think hybrid is actually the perfect stepping stone between regular gas uh, internal combustion engine powered cars and electric cars so i think everything really should be hybrid and toyota slash lexus has been a leader in this segment in getting most of their cars into hybrids the award-winning motoring journalists imtishan Giado and noel ebden who are with us on motor mania a couple of questions coming through fellas uh, let's start with this one it's for the team at motor mania and the question is this if you had to choose between a new bmw x7 and a second-hand Mercedes G-Class, which one would you buy? What's better value and what's better space for a family? This is from uh, one of our listeners this morning. Uh, let's start with you, Imtishan. Well, it's kind of a tricky question because the G-Class is obviously the more prestigious badge and the X7 has just quite simply more space. The G-Class also has way better in terms of resale value, whereas the X7 hasn't been hugely well received by the market out here in terms of, uh, well, take up. So I would probably go with the G-Class unless you need, have a quite large family and need all seven seats, in which case the X7 is a really, really good car that's kind of underrepresented, in my opinion. No? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, it's, um, personally, I'd go BMW just to be a bit more left field. Uh, But uh, yeah, I mean, they're both, so I mean, they both have, have similar traits as Imshan said so you know we'd, I'd go with whichever one is the brand that the, the, the guy sending in the message actually wants to uh, wants to be seen in so yeah that would be my advice because they're both very similar Al's been in touch with us as well uh, Al has what, Al wants thoughts he wants thoughts from your broth uh, he says this one I've had Land Cruisers for 40 years now but I was so disappointed by the new one. Why didn't they turbo, turbocharge the V8? Fix the lack of space in the rear seat. Now, better approach angles. It looks so base model, in my opinion. They are saying that sales are going well, but after 14 years, of course they are. People needed something new. I just feel like they put out a placeholder model while they get full EV versions ready. Your thoughts, please, Noel. Um, I, 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 firstly, I don't think that's true. I know they've been working on this model for a long, long time uh, to be the you know, the new big replacement of the previous uh, gen. So, no, I don't think it's a placeholder. Um, could it be for um, ahead of an electric version? 
maybe would that work in this region i question that um but uh yeah i mean I, Look, they're they're selling like crazy at the moment, as they always do. Um, And yes, they could have been bolder, but that's not Toyota's way. Toyota tends to sort of play it safe. They know their core customer and they stick to what those guys want, basically. Emtishan? As the owner of several Land Cruisers, including one that I'm currently restoring, a 25-year-old model, I think I'm well well equipped to answer this question. Um, (laughs) I can pretty much tackle all of his points in order. As Noel said, they're extremely conservative, Toyota, always have been. Their idea and their mission with their car is to get you where you want to go and back again. And where that is, that is, could actually be some of the most inhospitable parts of the world. So it's meant to be reliable above all else. In regards to his three points in terms of turbocharging the engine, V8s are on the way out. They are definitely not going to come back. So there was no question. Turbocharging would have given you a lot of power, and a lot more torque. But on the other hand, it would have raised the emissions to a completely unsustainable level. So they had to downcharge, downsize to the V6. It's a miracle. Trust me, they didn't downsize to a four-cylinder. But yeah, the V8 was never going to happen. The V6 is good. I have driven it. It is my personal opinion that it is considerably better than the old V8. Give it a chance. However, it won't have the noise. Although Toyota V8s are pretty quiet. I don't quite get the comparison. Um, regards to approach departure angles, that's for you to do. You can basically lift the car at a suspension lift and obviously deal with the modification hassles that might come with that. But if you want better approach and departure angles, put some bigger tires on and lift it. But Land Cruisers aren't really like Jeeps. They aren't really meant to be chucked around into small dunes. They're meant for carrying loads, carrying people and getting absolutely anywhere. And in regards to the third row accommodations, the car still rides on a solid axle because that's the most reliable thing you can have when you're in the middle of the Sudan. So at the end of the day, if you make that into independent system like you have in, say, the new Cadillac Escalade, you get a lot more legroom, but you don't get that strength. And if nothing else, Land Cruiser has to be strong. So, yeah, it'll never really change that much. And even I'm a little disappointed. Don't get me wrong. It feels almost exactly the same as the old one. But it does feel lighter. It feels a lot more powerful. So I would say give it a chance. And as Noel said, they are selling so much, they can't make them fast enough. Noel, concur with that? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think uh, stick with the. They've stuck with what they know. So yeah. Uh, well, getting uh, time for us just to hit up a couple of other stories that have come out in the uh, in the field. Uh, uh, Dubai based Sam Sunderland earning his second motorbike Dakar victory earlier on this month. Stellar performance over in Saudi Arabia to win by a matter of just minutes in what was an exciting event. City is uh, very very proud of him. A new Dubai tourism video will also show him or is showing him sitting on top of the Burj Khalifa. Sam getting his dues, Noel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, the guy's amazing. I mean, I, I've seen him ride in the desert personally. Um, he's, uh, I mean, just above above and beyond anybody else at the moment. Um, he's uh, He was consistent through the rally, which is the key to it. The key is to finish, um, but finish fast. Um, some of the footage from the Dakar, I would urge people to go online to the Dakar uh, uh, Instagram page and see some of the incredible helicopter footage of him riding through the desert. You'll be absolutely blown away at how fast he rides. Um, and he also won the race for Gas Gas, um, which although it is owned by KTM, which is his uh, previous uh, team, um, he it's the first time Gas Gas have ever won the Dakar. So, as you can imagine, the factory are going crazy at the moment. So, uh, yeah, very, they're very happy. And good to see a, a UAE born, you know, born mm. and brought up uh, um, guy winning the Dakar as well. So, yeah, amazing. 
Imti, uh, news from Cadillac as well this week. 2023 Cadillac Escalade is going to be the first SUV to don the high-performance V-Series badge. Your thoughts on that one? I think it's long overdue uh, that Cadillac hasn't got into this space because, let's be honest, Mercedes makes most of its profit off its fat AMG models. The same for BMW with their M cars. The G63 is one of the most popular cars in the UAE. So it's about time Cadillac came back. They have the engine. They just never combined it with the Escalade. And by the way, the Escalade is by far the most successful Cadillac there is because it gives people what they want, a big, heavy, fast very comfortable, very capable American car. It is not a four-wheel drive off-roader like a Land Cruiser or anything like that. It is meant to be a city car, but giving it lots more power. They haven't said how much power, but I imagine it's going to be some sort of supercharged V8, so 600, 700 horsepower. And of course, it will be lower, have some black trim and have your carbon fiber, this and that. I mean, the idea is kind of laughable. A carbon fiber on a Cadillac Escalade is ridiculous. But on the other hand, rich people want fast, comfy cars. And I don't see why they shouldn't have an Escalade Wii. Uh, let's get some final thoughts from both of you. First and foremost, uh, not often we discuss the weather on Motormania, but you know what? We can. It's an open canvas, a blank canvas for us all. High winds yesterday. Uh, a lot of people texting in uh, to the shows yesterday here on Dubai a 3.8 about driving conditions in the high winds. Thankfully, the winds have died a little bit, but no advice to drivers and high winds yeah i mean look to be honest for me being originally from the uk the winds they were high but they were i mean we encounter that fairly often in the uk and uh, but the i think the difference in the uae is there's a lot of things that aren't bolted down or yeah. uh, basically ready for those those sort of winds so i had to dodge two trees uh, doing the school run the uh, yesterday and things like that that come down across the road so um it's just a case of slow down i mean you know it's always the same thing it's the same when it rains you know just ease off the throttle ease off the throttle keep your eyes and you know your eyes open and um, and watch for people doing uh, doing things unusual on the road i mean there's it is always seems to be the same advice is just slow down um if if weather's it, it's the same anywhere in the world if the weather conditions change slow down yeah imtishan the weather's been throwing a few challenges of late definitely i'll also add one more thing to what noel said um be aware of the cars around you and what shape they are. For example, if you're driving next to a van, a van is a giant sail because it presents a huge amount of surface area to the wind. So if, if a sudden gust of wind strikes, it's probably likely to veer into your path unless the driver's been pretty much, you know, Nico Rosberg ready to counteract with a bit of steering. I think most people are going to be surprised by wind. So if a car's big and flat and slab-sided, it probably will be affected by the wind more than yours. If you drive an extremely light car, like a small saloon, like a Nissan Sunny or a Suzuki Jimny, you know, these kind of cars are likely to be tossed around by the wind more. So be aware of what you drive, be aware of what other people drive. And then, Hmm. as Noel said, slow down. But if cars suddenly start moving around, you'll know why, because literally about how they appear to the wind. Final thoughts from you both. Um, And it's a little question that's come through from a listener to finish up on. Again, it's opinion-driven, so let's get the opinions of uh, our two specialists. Starting with you, Imtushan. Chrysler Cordoba 77 or a Camaro 77 350? That is two completely diametric opposite vehicles. Um, (laughs) The Cordoba is a big personal GT cruiser, the sort of thing that Ricardo Montalban would drive on Fantasy Island, if people remember what that was. The Camaro is a tire-smoking American V8 monster that Burt Reynolds would drive, but he wouldn't because he'd drive a Pontiac. So honestly speaking, 
what kind of person are you? Do you like flares or do you like, you know, heels on your disco shoes? Really comes down to that. No. Yeah. It's hard to follow on from what he just said. Yeah, I mean, look, I'd go Camaro every day. It's a great looking car. Um, but uh, yeah, they're, uh, they're totally different vehicles. So um, impossible really to compare them. So um, horses for courses, as they say, whatever you, uh, whatever the, the guy wants to buy, um, go for it. Um, pick, pick the one that you like. Pick the one that you like. Uh, fellas, uh, like everything that you've been saying this morning, if people want to get in touch with you, Noel, how do people get in touch with you on socials? Uh, they can follow me on Instagram. No, it's just Noel Ebden on Instagram. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I'm in various uh, various magazines and on here, hopefully, um, every uh, every Saturday as well. You will be back, that's for sure, as Arnie once said. Uh, and Imtishan, how do people follow you? They can easily find me. I'm the only Imtishan on Instagram, pretty sure. And you can always follow me on my channel, Motoring Middle East, on Instagram and YouTube. Gentlemen, much appreciate your time. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. A big thanks to both Imtishan and, of course, Noel for joining us. And now let's talk all things uh, EV, EV recommendations and others as well. Uh, Kevin Shaloub is the CEO and the founder of EV Labs. Joins us live on a Saturday morning live on Microsoft Teams. Morning, Kevin. Good morning, Tom. How's it going? Really well. Now, for those out there not in the know, explain what EV Labs do and what you've been busy with. Sure. Uh, we're a multi-brand electric vehicle platform, a uh, uh, one-stop shop for electric cars. We're going to be opening a showroom soon, uh, one place where you can test drive all electric cars. You can already test drive uh, uh, electric cars at home if you'd like uh, uh, through our service. Look, I know we're going to talk things about, you know, there is more to the world than Tesla. We're going to talk about that and get your recommendations shortly. But let's start with, kick things off with a Tesla story if we can, because um, I want your reaction to a little story that came out this week. 19-year-old ethical hacker said that he's found flaws in a piece of third-party software that appears to be used by a relatively small number of owners of Tesla Inc. cars that could allow hackers to remotely control some of the vehicle's functions. David Colombo tweeted, Tuesday that the flaws gave him the ability to unlock doors and windows, start the car without keys and disable their security systems. He's based in Germany, also claimed he can see if a driver is present in the car or not, turn on the vehicle stereo sound systems and flash their headlights. Concerned? Um, I mean, yes and no, Tom. Uh, uh, to be honest, it is it is concerning that 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 a, a hacker could could hack into into their software system, especially that Tesla prides itself to be different with their software system. Uh, 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 th- that being said, it is a cybersecurity issue. I wouldn't I wouldn't categorize all EVs uh, um, or electric vehicles to to have an issue, and and some of them have uh, you know less uh, 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 big softwares and, and, and the way that the Tesla product is structured, you actually have the, your own account almost like on an Apple iPhone. Um, thankfully, we store much less private uh, information on, on, uh, on our cars than our phones. So uh, <laughs> it, it didn't have too much consequences. But it, it does bring up the, the bigger subject is, how much do we need electrification now versus autonomy now? And uh, uh, knowing that that you know there are still some concerns with autonomous vehicles, um, uh, uh, we're we're not 
necessarily entirely ready uh, uh, to, to mass produce autonomous vehicles, but we are ready to mass produce electric vehicles. And, and sometimes, you know, these try to be categorized together. I think we're, we're absolutely ready uh, uh, for electric vehicles and, and for obvious reasons as well. Um, well, to that end, uh, well, perfect time to ask you about the, the cars to look out for 2022. I mentioned earlier that it's not all about Tesla. What would you say are the sort of top five EVs to look out for this year? Well, uh, there's quite uh, some interesting products. Well, on the hypercar segment, we have two really interesting products coming to the market. First, we have the, the Draco Motors, which is already in the UAE. Um, uh, it actually launched here before any other market. Um, quite unique technology. It's the first car ever that you'll have uh, uh, no differential, meaning each wheel uh, operates independently. You can have one wheel go forward, one wheel go backward, and, and, and you have unique abilities. We have the Remac Automobili, which is quite exciting uh, as well. Zero to 100 in 1.85 seconds, 1914 uh, horsepower. Uh, one of the most powerful cars ever made um, and, and fastest accelerating on the quarter mile. Um, and then and then we have uh, uh, quite some exciting products. The Hummer EV uh, 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 is coming out by end of year um, uh, in the market. The the Porsche Taycan, which is already out, is, is really exciting. And, and I would say at a, a good price point, there's the Chevy Bolt EUV, uh, which is an SUV that, that's going to have 572 kilometers in range, um, or even the, the Mercedes EQS that has 700 kilometers in range now. So is this going to be the year? I mean, obviously, we've been talking about uh, electric vehicles for quite some time. Is this going to be a significant year in the progress, you think, of electric vehicles? Um, I, I think... Uh, I think you know the technology is there. Yeah. So, so as we're as we're speaking, uh, uh, the most products, especially in a market like the UAE, uh, can do. Uh, uh, you can go to Abu Dhabi and and come back with no problem at all. So, I don't think it's it's going to be a, a, an issue of technology. Uh, more so, how much will uh, uh, customers want to buy electric vehicles as their next car? How do people get in touch with you, Kevin, and all the team at EV Labs? Well, ev-lab.io uh, on our website is the best access or Instagram page. Listen, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much indeed for joining us uh, live this Saturday morning. That's Kevin Shaloub. Kevin is the CEO and the founder of EV Labs, giving us his recommendations of uh, top five EVs to look out for in 2022. That's it from us this morning. Uh, we'll see you in a couple of Saturdays' time uh, in a fortnight. That's the 5th of February next up for us. Thanks to our friends at Car Switch. Couldn't do it without them. And uh, check out the podcast on the Dubai Eye website. Big thanks uh, to all of you for your messages and of course, to Zina Zalamea uh, and Arnie for keeping us on air throughout. Uh, back in a fortnight. Till then, drive safely.